You are listening to Sound and Process, Episode 2, and I am a very excited Dan Dirks. Uh, I am excited for a couple reasons. One, that there is a second episode, uh, which is wholly due to the support and feedback from the Lines community. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, Lines is the forum for Grid Instrument and Eurorack module maker Mono. I'm also excited because Mono is celebrating its 10-year anniversary this month, so I am sharing this in time for that, but I'm most excited about our guest, the multi-talented Sean Helfrich. Now I'd come in contact with Sean's work uh, as Cool Maritime. Uh, his first album, Tea Time Travel, uh, released in 2012, is just this great modern take on surf music processed through electronics, and his newest release on Leaving Records, Some Sort of Wave Portal, is beautiful. It's an incredible display of patient and smart modular work those two things alone, more than enough for a good conversation. But as I dug deeper, the list of things to talk about with Sean just grew exponentially. He's not only a great musician, but he's an accomplished video artist. His studio, Encyclopedia Pictura, has made music videos for Bjork and Panda Bear. He's a part of founding DIY.org, uh, which teaches kids 21st century skills with a website and a, an upcoming animated TV show. Uh, from 2008 to 2012, he was part of Trout Gulch, which was a sustainable and hand-built hillside neighborhood in California. And not least of all, he and Caitlin Aurelia Smith are married to each other, which I had no idea about before our conversation, but it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. Talking with Sean was so much fun because it quickly shifted from just kind of deconstructing these two albums to covering all of this ground. And he told his story so well, so let's just get to it. Um, thank you for tuning in. Happy birthday, Monome. Uh, congratulations, Brian and Kelly. This is Sound in Process with Sean Hilfrich. throughout all the things that I've uh, kind of been experiencing over the last, you know, over a decade that, uh, that Monum has probably been, been there all along. <laughs> um, but I guess it would start back when I, um, I actually lived in LA uh, right after I finished uh, going to film school. And, uh, you know, I just had the fear put into me that you needed to move to Los Angeles and right. work in the film industry. And uh, while I was down here, I started getting into the music of uh, Daedalus, and um, or I guess I was into it a little bit before that. But I sort of, uh, you know, when I was down here, I learned that he was LA based and saw a show that he played, and uh, there was a bunch of electronic acts, and his just stood out um, so dramatically because of his grid that he was playing, which was like the one of the first prototypes that Brian built, and. Um, He's such a nice guy. And I, you know, approached him after the show and was like, what is this crazy thing? And uh, he, you know, was super patient and just explained the whole thing and how MLR works and that, you know, this guy, Brian, built it. And I was just like, where can I get one of these? <laughs> and uh, and it looked like it was kind of homemade, too, so or it was homemade. So I was like, can I build one of these? And he's like, you should really just talk to Brian. So he gave me his email and um, I wrote Brian just um, kind of gushing, saying that that was really exciting to me and how could I build one? Because I, um, 
you know, grew up like learning basic electronics and love to solder and stuff like that. So, um, I figured, you know, Hey, I can build this. It's a bunch of buttons. Um, and, and Brian was like, yeah, you could build one. Um, but it's going to be really expensive because, uh, you know, that box has 256 buttons. And if you try and find a, a quality button, you know, one that really feels good to play, you're going to be spending a few dollars per button. Yeah. So you do the math and, uh, and he's like, if you can wait a year, I'm really trying to figure out how to, to make these um, on, a, on a scale that people could, you know, just buy. And he's like, and if you can wait, it'll probably be a lot better quality than something that you DIY. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, okay, I guess. And um, so then like, it, you know, a year later uh, around or so, maybe a year and a half uh, was when they kind of first announced that they were making the 40H. Mm. And, um, I was super excited and, uh, you know, uh, I had just actually been on my first trip to New York, um, my first time ever out there when they, uh, like started the, they started selling them. Um, and it was actually, you know, there was this whole early years for Monom where like every time they put something up for sale, it was like went instantly and, you know. A month later, people were selling them for twice as much, and it was just like this strange, you know, scarcity. Um, But uh, yeah, so I was like one of the first people to to order one, and I was in New York, and I knew I was going to be going back to San Francisco in the next few days, and I was like, well, I can wait for it to ship. Or and then I he said, you know, on on like a forum or something, like if you're in Philly, come pick one up, and if you're in New York, it's a short train ride. And I was like, oh, cool, I'm gonna. I'm going to take the train to Philly. I've never done that before. Yeah. And uh, so, so I wrote him and he was really sweet and gave me, you know, full instructions on how to catch the train down there. And uh, I went down and um, saw their, their place there, which was also just really inspiring because um, him and Kelly had like a big warehouse and they were like, they had an indoor greenhouse and they're growing veggies and it was just so open and they had a workshop and it just, it was a very inspiring work environment. What and, year um, was this? Uh, this was 2006. Okay. Um, yeah. So 10 years ago, I guess. Um, so yeah, he, you know, grabbed a 40 H plugged it into his computer, showed me the test program kind of that everything was working. And then I, you know, happily hopped on the train back and this is before I had, <laughs> this is before I had a laptop. So it was like, I couldn't even really use it, um, until I got back home to California. Uh, but I did that night. I like took it over to my friend's computer and plugged it in found some loops and we were messing around with mlr because that was really the only like program or that was like the only program you could really i guess get he had some basic demo things but that was i mean that was the real draw for me was that program yeah um and so uh i had the grid for you know years and kind of just was always experimenting with it and recording things and messing around with them and but not really like definitely living as like a frustrated musician Mm. um just because you know early on i decided that you know well very early on i decided i wanted to be a filmmaker like when i was like in sixth grade or something um so you know in my mind i was like you know music is this thing that's meant a lot to me for a long time but it's sort of on the side and that filmmaking is so important to me that I'm always going to put that first and, um, and sort of just 
keep my nose down on that. And that was, you know, that was really time consuming. So the monom was and, and, and music and all that stuff was kind of like just for fun or sort of like a break or to change it up or whatever. Right. Um, even though in the back of my mind, I really wanted to release music and, and share that with people as a part of who I was. So, um, it basically just took a really long time for that to finally come out as something. And I think the big reason was just because, uh, I like, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really, it's hard to take a bunch of ideas, put them all together. Um, you know, get it, like mix it, just get it to a level where you're happy with it and also feels true to who you are. Um, that was the biggest thing is like, I can listen back to a lot of sketches and ideas and stuff and I can tell, oh, I was just being really influenced by so-and-so and, uh, and now it doesn't really like feel like me so much. Um, so that was like a big criteria as I would, I didn't want to release music until it felt like it was actually my voice and, uh, and that I w- would at least be able to look back on it or listen back on it, you know, years later and not, you know, be embarrassed or, mm-hmm. um, you know, feeling like I had really... I mean, everyone changes, so I know that'll happen, but I, I just wanted to, you know, sort of have that gut check on it. So, as far as how I was using MLR, uh, I would often, um, I think when I really hit my stride with it, I would um, usually find some sort of percussive sample loop uh or like make them from you know recording samples sequencing them it however it came across i would basically build up a library of percussive loops um get them going on there and then uh the point at which i really started to uh find it creatively fulfilling was when i got this um this old guitar from a good friend uh, it's this three-quarter scale um, a classical guitar uh, made in Mexico. It's called a gilb with a B, not a guild, but a gilb. And um, and it just had this kind of uh, really interesting quality to it. Um, the intonation isn't great, but it just has this like soft sort of um, personality to it. And, uh, you know, I learned how to build a contact mic. Um, and so I taped the contact mic onto the to the gilb and would run it through some some delay pedals, both digital and analog. And um and then I would just plug that right into my MacBook Pro, uh, because the older ones actually had the the line input on them. And so just that setup, which was totally battery powered, was off the computer, was just and the pedals, was just the guitar, you know, going into the laptop into mlr with the grid there and i was using um one of the edits i think this was before mlrv came out and um i was using one of the edits i think it was like called the aes edit or something but it basically just added on a few extra things for the live recording um to to get it like really in sync with whatever your your loops were doing um and it would just allow you to start the recording like it had a pre-roll so you could hit record and then the next time the loop started around it would start recording mm. and so i would just kind of like uh sit with this setup and some loops 
that I really liked. And I would just like record loops over and over um, with the guitar until I felt like it was like working and that I didn't get tired of it. And the key thing was that I would, you know, layer up, you know, at least four layers of these guitar loops, usually, you know, just like one measure long or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was it was this like really fun process where, you know, I could just sit down any time of the day. It was already there and just play the guitar and and then reflect on it and be like, is this annoying? Like, (laughs) can I could, could I listen to this for a long time? Um, and if I couldn't, then I would, you know, tear it all down and start over until things were like, had a groove to them. And also at that point I was really, I mean, I still really am, but I, I was really, I've always been really inspired by, um, like early surf music. Um, not so much the, not so much the Dick Dale, like flamenco influence, but the, um, the, the, the Link Ray like early rock and roll um just kind of heavy drum beats um really simple guitar licks that are usually pentatonic and um and just sort of uh lots of delay and yeah i mean i guess they weren't using lots of delay back then but (laughs) yeah um but sort of just that like early surf feeling I should also like just to contextualize the timeline um you know i got the grid back my first grid back in 2006 but it wasn't really until um you know probably 2011 or so maybe early 2011 maybe 2010 that i like was finally really making something with it that felt like was me um I mean, I had things before that that I'm sure if I listened to, I'd be stoked on them. But like, I just, that was the first time I was getting to a place where I was like, okay, I can, I can actually like continue working on these to, to flesh them out. Um, and so just to further contextualize it, um, you know, I had been living in LA, then I moved up back up to the Bay area to start Encyclopedia Pictura with my, um, my pal Isaiah. And we lived in the Bay area in this like crazy flat full of friends um and it was really fun and uh we had you know like a dozen people in like a you know one two yeah like three bedroom or something (laughs) um it was just a lot of people we had lofts in every room and isaiah and i shared a room and um and that was really like when we were focusing most of our energy or all of our energy on making music videos and um you know we had always had this dream that we would go live in the countryside and do our own Skywalker ranch. And we'd have this like, you know, big, big barn full of like, uh, visual effects equipment, you know, like, um, we would have like a model shop and puppets and we would also have like, you know, computer lab and green screens and just this whole kind of, kind of big vision. And we're also doing a lot of work with, um, physical, effects at that time like building puppets and doing stop motion and stuff like that Mm. and um and so that was really resource intensive required you to be near a uh, kind of specific shops you know to get stuff for making molds and and casting things and there's a great scene for that in san francisco so um because of the history 
Right. Um, so we kind of, you know, just, and I should also say at that point, we started working with our other partner, Darren uh, Rabinovich, who was really the one who brought us into the world of doing this physical fabrication stuff. He worked for Industrial Light and Magic and um, did uh, stop motion puppets for the Life Aquatic. Um, oh, cool. And and had this whole world that he he was really the one who introduced introduced us to it. And uh, you know, Darren was like, you know, how are you going to live in the woods if you need to be near places to buy casting stuff and all that, and um, and mold making equipment. And uh, then you know, after doing music videos for years, we finally got like our first commercial, um, which was for the video game Spore, and. Um, we were really excited because there was a budget and we were like, we're going to make this in computer animation. And so we went to um, Tippett Studio, which is a really cool animation studio in Berkeley um, with a really long history, started by Phil Tippett, who did uh, really pioneering stop motion work um, and is a legend. Uh, but they've, they're all CG now. Um, so we got to work with them and that was our first exposure to doing CG. And we were like, wow, you know, if we were doing all CG, we could live in the woods. <laughs> um, and so it was like, while we were finishing that project, we were like, let's move to the woods. And, um, and Isaiah's family had uh, like a 10 acres in, Santa, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And, uh, and his, his parents were awesome enough to, to welcome us and some of our friends who were awesome enough to do something crazy like that. Um, and so that's like, we moved to this place in the hills and, uh, it was on Trout Gulch road. And so that's why it's called Trout Gulch. And, mm. and we lived there for like four years and it was like this, this experience of just sort of learning how to build and grow things and, um, make food with the things that you were growing and, um, and really just like, just felt like a time of like deep learning about kind of everything we were excited about. And, um, for those of us who are filmmakers, me and Isaiah and Darren, it was all under the premise that we were going to write a feature. Um, you know, we were going to go to the woods and write a movie and, um, but it just turned into such an amazing, uh, community of, of friends. We met so many new people and that was kind of like a big inspiration for the, the first album I made, uh, Tea Time Travel, which was, uh, you know, really just influenced by being in this amazing environment full of really creative people, um, going to the beach a lot, building things, uh, going on adventures, um, camping, um, just like raising goats and, uh, planting trees, all this really fun stuff and sort of, um, yeah, it was just a very creative time. And I was uh, also just before I kind of started working on that music, I had s started a little band um, and we never recorded anything, but it was like a group of six people. And the whole c concept behind the band was that we were going to create music that you would want to hear while you were on an adventure. And so we called the the, the band Adventure Club. And, uh, and it was just like, the whole it was all instrumental with just well i guess it had um sort of like non-lyrical singing um and uh the whole idea behind it was you know just this sort of adventurous music and i think that kind of 
spilled over into what I was writing for tea time travel. Um, it was all that influence. When we first moved there, we were all really excited to like build these like hobbit houses and like dig holes in the ground and um, just be super weird about it. Uh, but we realized that's like that's that's kind of uh, not not like a actual way to live over <laughs> an extended period of time. Um, sure. And so we were like building little cabins, and I was building this cabin on a hillside, um, and it was actually an extension of an old like playhouse. But that kind of turned into a little sanctuary for me where I could go and, and record this stuff with the guitar and the mono grid and uh, and was really like a, a spot. Like it was kind of my first time where I had a recording studio, like a little area where there was nobody else and uh, I could just go play around. And um, I also had a uh, Tascam uh, 424 cassette 4-track that... Um, one of the people who were living there uh, lent me and I had that set up and I had a little um, polysynth, the Dave Smith Tetra. Um, and uh, so like just kind of with that and the guitar and stuff, I was also recording a lot of stuff on a cassette and was just finding it very liberating to not work in a computer. Cause I just uh, prior to that, I was always, in the box i was always like trying to make stuff in ableton or record tracks in ableton and like when i was much younger and learning about music i was using like fruity loops and yeah it was just always always in this uh mode of like sitting down at the computer okay i'm gonna make music but i also sit down at the computer to do a lot of my other work so there wasn't much of a uh i didn't feel you know i guess what it is is that um I like I like it when I'm like uh creatively maybe a little bit uncomfortable like where things are um maybe a little unfamiliar and you are you know kind of crouched on the ground with wires everywhere and mm. um you haven't done this and you know and it's like just kind of you're just like figuring things out oh that doesn't work I'm going to unplug this and plug this in and um and so that was kind of what was happening down in this this little cabin that I was building it was just like, you know, I was just like messing around with things and a lot of it wasn't happening in a computer. And if it was, it was just with this like one patch uh, that that, you know, Brian had made, which was just so simple. Um, you know, it was like all I had to really do was make sure everything was routed and then I didn't really have to even use it. Mm. Um, or look at it. It was just there. And the grid was the interface for it. So it just created this, like, uh, the right conditions, I guess, for for things to unfold. Um, so that was, like, kind of where all the sketches were happening for songs. And I was actually starting to feel like I was getting getting somewhere. And then, um, and then I fell in love. <laughs> uh with Caitlin and um she had been living up on uh Orcas Island um which is in the Pacific Northwest uh um in Washington it's a really beautiful island in the San Juans and um 
yeah, she uh, she had visited us at Trout Gulch, and um, I'd actually known her for quite a while, but we um, like really uh, just have always gotten along really well, and we have been good friends. Um, and uh, I had been traveling, and uh, I just spontaneously decided to switch my return flight um, early to go up to Washington because I'd heard so much about Orcas Island and, um, and she had invited me up there to check it out. And, um, and also most very importantly was this crazy story, um, that she's told where basically she was living on Orcas, um, helping a neighbor with something who was also a musician and, um, you know, he was asking her about her influences and she cited Terry Riley as one of them. Mm-hmm. And he said, Oh, you like Terry Riley? And like, you know, all these other people from that era. He's like, You should come see this. And so uh, he takes her over to his barn, turns on the lights, and there's like a bunch of old Buchla 100 cabinets sitting there. And, um, and I mean, uh, you know, as she tells it, she had no idea what a, a Buchla was or a modular synthesizer, um, but it looked really cool. And um, and he said, you know, if you wanted to, like, borrow one of these for a little while, you could, and you can learn about how it works. Because he was, like, really into them back in the day and since then has kind of um, held on to them for obvious reasons, but doesn't really play them or even find working with them to be his... his uh, preference he likes to compose for piano so um so anyways she's also like hey i got this buchla 100 so i'm like okay uh beautiful woman that i have a crush on uh amazing location in the pacific northwest uh on an island and a rare vintage uh synth built by one of the synthesis pioneers um so i I really couldn't resist it um <laughs> yeah so yeah so i went up there and uh it was incredible and that was like you know we would just like light a bunch of candles and sit around the the buchla 100 and um figure it out and it was incredibly limited i mean it was just one cabinet there was no sequencer it was two oscillators two envelope generators uh two timing pulses and like some some uh, control voltage processors, a spring reverb, fixed filter bank. Um, uh, There was this, (laughs) this module called the, the dual hiss cutter that we always made jokes about because it was like totally useless for us. It was just like, I think it was made for like, if you were playing back from tape or something right? and you would run it through there. Um, But it was so limited, but we just had so much fun learning it, and it was so unstable and um, just beautiful sounding. So to kind of loop around in a very strange way, um, you know, while we were living at Trout Gulch, one of our main focuses was writing a feature. (laughs) And um, so we were writing this feature, and we, you know, just kind of naturally came to the topic of DIY because that was the theme of what we were doing at Trout Gulch. We were right. getting excited about something and then we were going 
and learning how to do it through usually through the internet or through mentors and and then we were just you know getting fired up and doing it and um and so it was just a really uh it was so exciting to us that we had this vision for you know a movie that was set in the near future in a small rust belt town about a group of kids who were just like you know super diy little mini macgyvers that basically could sort of you know get in and out of all sorts of adventures um with with this passion and sort of like that it would be their superpowers um would be these diy skills um and and we were really excited about the idea of something that felt as fantastic as like harry potter but without magic with Mm. like just actual real things that are both real and awesome and um and around that time we also met uh this fellow uh zach klein who uh who's uh, one of the co-founders of Vimeo. Um, and he was looking for his next project and he, you know, heard about the, the movie we were writing because um, he met Isaiah and um, thought that was really cool. And he was an Eagle Scout and was really into the Scouts program growing up. So he had this affinity for it, but he also felt conflicted um, in ways that I think a lot of, um, you know, parents in our generation do that uh that the scouts is not is that is that it's a little antiquated even though it has these amazing um things at its root uh it teaches amazing skills and really valuable things it just felt outdated Mm -hmm. um and you know a lot of us in my generation i think grew up uh with parents who wanted their kids to be in something like that but didn't feel like the scouts was the right thing right and so he was like what if we took this sort of this diy um sort of spirit that you guys are writing about and we made it into like a modern platform for kids to uh to to gather around um well but all this is happening at the same time right like there's this it seems like a perfect storm of like you starting to find a sound that you like uh, coming from this kind of like, I want to be a musician, but I uh, also am a filmmaker. So you're like starting to find that you meet Caitlin, you get to explore this like insanely cool, rare instrument. You are like jumping around geographically and you've got this DIY thing starting to pop up. All of that. Exactly. Yeah. That's insane, (laughs) dude. (laughs) <laughs> that's insane <laughs> it was a lot of things going on at once and um and uh yeah it was a crazy tumultuous time and it was actually really um it was a little tough for me at the time because um uh in order to start the diy website um we were gonna have to move back to the bay area because we need to hire people right and um and uh i kind of was at this crossroads where it was like okay i can go to back to san francisco and work on the the startup or you know what about this relationship that's building um and so i went back to san francisco for a little while and uh i mean it was a great group of people to work with and i'm so proud of everything that that website stands for but i quickly realized that like working at at this at that company or at, at any sort of startup wasn't really appropriate for my skills and sort of my disposition Mm -hmm. um just because a startup doesn't need a filmmaker 
no matter how bad they want one. Sure. Um, uh, startup needs, you know, designers, engineers. Uh, and so I decided not to, you know, work on, on that project full time and moved up to Orcas Island. And, um, and that's when I actually was able to really finish all the music that I had been working on. Um, and the website was moving way faster than the film, um, which is pretty, pretty standard, I yeah. think, these days. Um, and so we were like always kind of in holding patterns on the film, you know, collaborating with writers and waiting to hear back for long periods of time. So it really gave, you know, me an opportunity to to devote some time to music. And it also gave Isaiah and Darren time to devote to the website. Mm-hmm. Um and that was kind of just the period where I started experimenting more with uh, using vocals and um, and recording my voice and just sort of like finishing tracks and structuring them. Because like I would really just uh, record all those sketches with the grid um, kind of pretty openly. And um, oh, yeah, there was a cool feature on that edit of MLR, which uh, every, you could... Um, be recording all of the groups on separate audio files while you were cutting around. So at the end, I would have six groups of audio files that I could then take into Ableton and sort of play around with. So, um, so yeah, uh, I just um, did a lot of editing of that stuff and um, had a bunch of stuff I'd also recorded onto tape and did some more writing. And Caitlin was really helpful. She's like such a supportive person and um just like really helped me helped me both um sort of feel uh confident in what I was doing but also um is really motivating she's uh, got an insane work ethic when it comes to music yeah and um and so it was just and she had made albums before so she knew kind of how much work it was and would was really good at like checking in with me like oh what are you going to do on it today sort of thing (laughs) and so I really have to give a lot of credit to her to like you know keeping me um motivated so to speak um but also just being encouraging um so yeah kind of finished that up there and mixed it myself and um and then basically while I was living on Orcas with Caitlin was like really where our relationship solidified um and you know, I was like, well, I'm going to have to move back to the Bay Area to be near my collaborators, and it would be really great if you came with me. Mm-hmm. And so um, she did. How and, long was that period of time? Uh, on Orcus was probably, I mean, it was not that long. It was probably like four months or something. Yeah. But um, but during that time period, uh, you know, we like raised chickens and learned to hunt and uh i think those things will do it that'll solidify whether or not a partnership's (laughs) working yeah yeah it was really cool and we were living together in a small cabin and uh it was just yeah it it was totally totally working so um so yeah we knew we were going to move back to the bay area um, but we weren't excited about living in the city so we found this really amazing small town um just up the coast uh I'm not going to say the name of it out of respect yes. to its, uh, I mean, a lot of people know where it is. So you'll, if you're really curious, you'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> but uh, to my people there in, in that wonderful place, uh, I'm going to keep it un, unnamed. Um, but uh, so we moved there 
And it was really hard to find a place, but eventually we did. And we got welcomed into the community and we lived there for like, I think three years or something. Um, and, uh, it was amazing. And that was kind of over that period of time. Well, when we first moved down, I, you know, released the album as self-released mm-hmm. on like tape and on Bandcamp. Not a lot of people heard it, but it was mostly just for me to get it out there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and just show it to peers and, and friends and say like, you know, this is a part of what I do also. And um, that was really satisfying. I mean, I really write through recording. So another really interesting aspect, a, a big learning aspect for me was what it means to to basically run your own, uh, I guess, record label just because of using Bandcamp mm. and uh, and making and offering tapes. It was like I wouldn't get orders that often, but when I did, I was like, okay, here we go. Like I'm gonna go, <laughs> you know. I had my own like you know tape deck, so I'd make a copy of the master, and then I'd like, okay, now I gotta like decorate the tape and. And then I'd be like, okay, now I got to print out the J card and like cut it perfectly, package it up, take it to the post office. And it was kind of like this thing that I would savor a little bit like, oh, this is this process. You know, this is someone, you know, wanting my music. This is cool. Like, this is what you asked for. Mm. (laughs) But then I was also like, man, this is so inefficient. Um, And that was kind of what made me want to work with uh, an established like label or at least seek that out, no matter like what they're you know, their uh, sort of following was or, you know, just like, well, I mean, following actually is super important. I shouldn't say that. Yeah. Um, but just wanting to uh, find a partner in that was like uh, important, became important to me from there on out. Sure. Um, well, I guess then it gets into, uh, I mean, if you're looking for an established label, then leaving put out some sort of wave portal. Right. Yes. Um, so then that purposefully probably for your own sanity uh balancing everything that was probably a huge help totally yeah and it was actually just it worked out so well it was like i had made some new music and um and had also just gotten really into making i really wanted to make something that kind of felt timeless and i don't mean timeless in the sense of um like always relevant or uh, fitting to the era. I mean, timeless and just that you could listen to it and not be sure how much time has passed. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, had made these recordings and was showing them to Caitlin and I was like, you know, I really want to release this, but like, I also want to have it on a physical format. Um, because, uh, I have a tape deck in my van and I always like, (laughs) will leave a tape. I'll, I'll leave a tape in there for like, a month or something it's like every time i get in the van it's that tape and i just really like that and i have a feeling there are other people that do that too yes. and so that was why i wanted to release something physically and um she had you know released an album uh i guess was it last year um called euclid mm-hmm. and um and uh this guy mastered it matthew david who runs leaving records and um and so she was like, you know, you should send it to him. I feel like he would really like it. 
maybe he knows someone who could release it or maybe he would want to. And um, so we sent it to him and he was just like delighted. He was so sweet and just said, this is perfect. I'm doing this modern new age series. Would you like to be a part of it? Um, You know, we make a couple hundred tapes and uh, you know, it's, I was just super excited because I was basically making sort of new age or ambient music and um and the fact that someone was already curating a series in that that was modern was really exciting to me because I was like oh there's an audience here yeah. and this like really nice person um wants to to do it so I was I was really excited to to work with him and uh you know have become friends with him since moving down here so that's been awesome sparked that transition going from I mean I know you, you said you don't you know you didn't love being in the box for everything um, and so you started to pull out with uh, tea time travel but then uh, what made that shift into uh, embracing the modules and, and going in that direction fully basically I didn't really have any like modular gear we had the those keyboards I was talking about and um and Caitlin was uh, started writing music with the the music easel, the Buchla music easel. Mm. We like, you know, decided that that was what we wanted to get um, with our hard earned money, <laughs> and um, and so we got like one of the first ones that came out after the reissue. Um, and we didn't really know much about. There's like some controversy and sad stories about the whole how that came to be and the new bemi and all that and we weren't really that familiar with any of that stuff but we were just we just knew that there was this beautiful instrument that was coming back from the dead yeah uh and you know it was sort of within reach so um so she was working with that a lot and um and then uh and then i had gotten an op1 and was just having so much fun with that as far as a creative tool because it was taking me out of the box again. Yeah. It was a just it was a little four track recorder and you could sample and you could make loops and um the FM sounds pretty good. And uh but I was like, okay, this is great, but it doesn't have any of the analog side of things. So then I was like, okay, what could I add on to this just to bring at least one analog synth voice into it? And I was like, well, I'll just get the Pittsburgh Modular synth box because it's like a complete voice. And most importantly, it's, a, it's like the only complete voice that has low-pass gate in it. And I was like, that's super important because I love the Buchla low-pass gate. Mm-hmm. So, so then I got that and the uh, OP Lab, which allows me to use the OP1 as a controller and send control voltage to the analog synth. And so then I had this like self-contained thing where the the synth box could go into the input of the OP1 and the OP1 could be its its sequencer and it's synchronized to the tape machine. So it was like this very uh self-contained little unit. And of course, as everyone says, that first module was the gateway. Um Yeah. And so, you know, 
for a long time, I just had that. And then I added a wave folder, which then gave me the even more of the, the Buchla sound. Um, and so then it was just that for a while. Um, and uh, meanwhile, um, you know, Monom was kind of debuting their, their Eurorack 4A. And I was just so stoked when I saw that because um, I just, it made so much sense. I was like, you guys are on it. Like, they've always been really good at uh, designing, like, different tools for the grid. And here now I'm seeing a perfect extension of, like, all the sort of things that are kind of a pain to do in a modular synth brought to the grid interface and um and you know i mean i there's certainly the you can make the argument that like because the grid is so open it's hard to remember where everything is um on it and and like that it can be really confusing to someone who doesn't know where everything is um but i also saw it still being kind of uh uh just kind of uh, a logical expansion of modular synthesis i was like okay like of course like the history of modular synthesis has all these alternative input devices um and you know like the touch keyboards and stuff like that and um and this is like so perfect like visually it's like the comparison to a step sequencer is already there um and it's like you know bringing also the ideas that were established like in mlr like the ability to cut to a certain section and loop it. Um, I thought that was a really, you know, nice way to interact with a sequence. Um, but I didn't get any of the modules because I didn't have a grid. I didn't have my grid anymore. Um, I had, I had sold it a while back and, uh, and I was just kind of, I, you know, what happened was, is that every time I would sit down to, to make new music, I would kind of do the same thing that I did on, on tea time travel I'd like find a loop, put it in MLR, and I would, you know, start recording guitar. And I was like, this is really fun, but I'm kind of just doing the same thing that I did before, mm. which isn't necessarily bad, but I just uh, didn't feel like it was what I wanted to be doing. Um, and so, you know, the grid was just kind of sitting around, not getting use. And as it goes with gear, you know, you sell some stuff to pay for other things. And um, so I had gotten rid of it, and but I was watching all this new modular stuff happened with monom and i was getting really excited and then um i saw a teletype come out and i was like what this is so <laughs> weird like I, and i was like that's super cool and like kind of ridiculous and i didn't even really try to understand it at first i was just like okay there's like a computer in a modular synth and it looks like the type of computer you would actually want in a modular synth. Yeah. Um, but I just kind of, uh, didn't give myself the capacity to, to try and understand it until one night <laughs> where I, where I like couldn't sleep or something. And I was like, I'm going to check that out a little more. And when I started reading about it, I was like, Oh, you know, I completely missed the fact that it was like the scripts. There was one script per input and that, you know, this idea that you could, you know, tie each input to whatever you wanted it to be and that it could be as simple as you wanted it to be. It didn't need to be overwhelmingly complex or generative or whatever. 
and um i don't have any like formal coding or scripting experience when i was a teenager i learned basic html and have been pretty much stuck in 2001 <laughs> code experience since then but i could understand the basics of what was going on there and um and i liked that it limited you in so many ways and i also really liked this like tracker view because i've always had a problem with sequencing in the analog sort of modular world um i don't like really using uh trim pots to sequence because uh i mean if they're quantized it's a little easier but i also just i'm not super into the fact that once you set your sequence um that's it uh there it is and uh like for example something like the pressure points or whatever where you're like okay i've made my sequence it's awesome now i better record this because if i want to make something else I have to get rid of it. And like, I t- can totally get with the, the, how freeing that can be on a creative side of things. Um, as far as just like limiting yourself, I'm totally down with, with limitations and all that. But just for me personally, I want to have like a bunch of sequences and I don't want to have a bunch of sequencer modules. And, um, and, and I know a lot of these types of sequencers have memory. Um, but then when you switch it, now all your knobs aren't relevant anymore, and you're kind of stuck in the whole uh, MIDI controller paradigm where it's like all my knobs are irrelevant now. Right. Um, and so I just could never bring myself to, to get into that, and that's why I was like using the OP1 sequence and stuff. Um, but then when I realized that uh, Teletype had this sort of tracker functionality, um, I could kind of see how I could build a basic four-track sequencer. Um, also, then I had kind of... Um, I was starting to feel inspired by what Brian w- Crabtree was doing. With um, He was talking about on the forum how he was getting really into using MLR as a more like a long delay with pitch shifting. Um, by running things into the input and just kind of letting it run while he's playing other things. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was a really cool idea. So I was like, I think I'm going to get a grid again. Um, And maybe, you know, I always thought the computer was a great tool for processing. Maybe the grid would just be a nice way for me to interact with whatever processing I was doing on the computer. And, um, but still, you know, keeping things in more of the hardware realm. So I found someone was selling a used 128 for a really good price. And uh, it was like the very first one that had four-stage brightness. So I at least knew that it would be compatible in some way with the, uh, with the, um, the newer modules. Um, and that was, I think, actually, when I recorded some sort of wave portal, uh, that was all just with that setup and... Um, and mostly I just was using Teletype as a basic sequencer. You know, I when I got it, I didn't really fully get meadow physics. Um, and I didn't understand that they were kind of built for each other. And that meadow physics is really like, just unlocks Teletype um, as far as getting really deep into what it can do. Interesting. So I was, yeah, so I was just using like, because... Because Teletype itself just has, you know, this one 
metronome script in it. And so that's really your only way to generate timing information other than just running like an LFO into it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just using that to sequence, you know, the metronome sort of, and, um, and was just realizing like, if I really wanted to do like strange polyrhythmic stuff, I would need more inputs and stuff like that. So at that time I was getting just really into the idea of making ambient music and, uh, had been super inspired by, uh, the musician Edward Larry Gordon, um, who also, uh, is probably better known under the name Laraji and, uh, does really beautiful recordings with, um, a zither, uh, that has been like processed deeply. And, uh, he creates just really ethereal sounds and he's got this recording. I think it was recorded in the eighties. It's called essence universe. And, uh, I it's probably my most listened to album of all time. I just I'm constantly playing it no matter what I'm doing. It works for everything. And um and so I was just very inspired by that timeless quality and wanted to make something in that realm. Um and so with this setup all I was doing was uh using the built-in delay in the OP1 just as long as the delay can possibly get and um and with the feedback up pretty high. And then just using the um, the sisters filter in its uh, like bandpass mode, and um, and then the sequences through the synth box, and sort of just like really slowly uh, playing all that stuff in real time for like half an hour uh, or an hour, and until it was like I finally, you know, I did it a bunch of times until I finally had a, a take that I was like, okay, this never gets annoying. <laughs> um, and then the tracks on, so that the release is like one half hour track and then there's these shorter tracks. Right. And those ones were all like recorded in slightly different ways. Um, with w- the very last one, Spring, is actually completely different. And that's uh, the Korg Monopoly uh, multi-tracked on the OP1. But all the sounds on that are the Monopoly, all the percussion and everything is just the Monopoly. So that's like the one song that isn't modular. Mm. Um but yeah, the the whole album was just done with that super simple setup. And since then, I've I've expanded more. Um, I got Earthsea and uh, Metaphysics and the the newest Grid, um, which is insanely nice. I you know I had the older one. I think it was like from like 2011 or something. And the most recent one is just like, I mean. I always thought the other ones were good, but this one is just like you can just like run your finger across the buttons and oh, that's great. It's just very amazing how the manufacturing has improved. Are then your live performances uh, kind of like shortcutting to those aha moments or are they improvisational or... Yeah, what's the feel on that? Yeah, well, currently the the live performances are totally improvisational. But um, the nice thing about teletype is that when I am writing at home and coming up with these sequences, now they're there and right. I can save them. And, you know, there's, I don't know, like 30 scenes or whatever that I can save them to. And the same with Metaphysics and Earthsea. It's like all those I can save and recall whenever I want and edit and um, 
it's not in the computer and it's not a bunch of knobs that now mean nothing like yeah. it's the grid is just this perfectly adaptable interface for for looking at all that information as is the the nice little screen on the teletype um so it allows me to then go out live and uh and basically improvise on a theme um mm. which is just very very nice for that type of music is to sort of you've got this little ecosystem that you can wander around in and um and it's just there which is really nice and modular because it's you're often sort of purpose building a voice for a composition you know it helps out a little bit having those tools there for that um i still i wouldn't say i've nailed playing live i've, I've only done it a couple times with the modular mm. prior to that i've played live a few times with caitlin where we're just sort of improvising with like the the korg uh, monopoly and the poly six and stuff like that and that's super fun because it's like um you kind of it's easy to move around in and they're built for live performance uh and they sound gorgeous so it's just kind of like coming from that uh and seeing how how much easier that lends itself to live performance yeah. i'm like just trying to uh i'm still exploring i'm not even i should say also i'm not even 100 percent convinced that uh modular is is totally for me uh sometimes i get sick of wiring up a voice because i'm just like why like <laughs> this like i don't need i already know i want four voices like always you know i don't need to tear it down all the time and put it back together and um so i'm like sometimes i'm questioning whether i even you know it's so fun to play with but i'm also like is this the best use of my time <laughs> um but I, I i absolutely love when i can i also don't consider myself a very advanced modular synthesis like when i see people like at modular on the spot who um are doing really intricate things with timing and um all these like very analog modules uh and um creating these very generative patches that sort of evolve and play themselves for a long time i always have a lot of admiration for that because uh it just is a whole world that i feel like i'm a baby in i think the next step that i'd like to take it to is more um rounded out like songs and pieces and i really want to figure out how to incorporate more movement into the live performance where there's a sense of dynamics in the um just one piece to the next where it's like there's silence there's you know things by themselves there's a lot of things all at once i feel like my tendency right now is sort of it stays in one world the whole time right and um I would like to just be able to get better at sort of taking things on an emotional curve. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I actually would really like to start adding in more uh, groove oriented stuff and guitar and sort of bring back some of the, the spirit that was in my first album Yeah, and, um, and sort of meld the two worlds together. So we'll see what happens. It's kind of a lot to, to keep track of um especially with the modular my ideal would be everything would just be like in one suitcase and uh all wired up and i could just open it and it would work <laughs> but i haven't gotten there yet you know like i have like a moog work stat that i have to use right now because i don't have another voice and so it's like there's one kind of dongle hanging off of everything <laughs> um <laughs> but it's all patched into the modular but it's just like it's 
I don't want to like try and rack mount it, but it would just would be nice to have everything in one box. Yeah. It's funny, I think uh the term in the box is gonna take a whole new take on a whole new meaning now. Yeah. <laughs> in the box soon is just gonna mean like in the modular and then at some point people are gonna be like, Oh, it's so nice to get out of the modular. I think it's really cool i have been on you know the monom forums since they first started and uh and sometimes thought it was weird that i was like, hanging out on a forum that was like for a company even though it's a really chill company and then was really excited when they said you know this isn't just our forum anymore this is like i mean it never was but uh that they kind of you know really intentionally said this is you know we just want this to be a cool place with cool ideas and um yeah i have a lot of admiration for for uh, the work ethic that that both brian and kelly uh maintain i just i I mean the first time i well when i met brian in person like last year at the um there was like a modular synth thing in new york uh i was like how do you get it all done like you just you're it seems like you're doing so much and he said the key thing is he just uh, doesn't work on monom stuff on the weekends, um, which seems obvious, but uh, and I don't think that's always true. <laughs> uh, Brian and Kelly recently did a trip uh, out west um, this year, and they came by our studio here in LA. Oh, cool! And got to got to spend some time with them. It was really it's been really funny, um, sort of reconnecting with brian because uh um you know we met all those years ago me just this like random dude who came by his 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 place to buy uh, i think it was number 17 of the the 40h and um and then here we are years later now we're like much better friends and have connected a lot over um you know the things that they've been doing up upstate and my experience with building a community in trout gulch and uh, we've connected a lot on that stuff. And um, so it's been really cool getting to know them more. And I hope to take a trip. I still haven't visited their place, but I really hope to take a trip out there sometime this summer and uh, spend some time uh, dreaming up ideas. Yeah.